Hi, I'm John Atak, and I am yet again joined by my dear friend Hoyt Richards. Hi, Hoyt. Well, it's nice to be here, John, as always. Good to see you. And I'm going to put in a pitch first because that's what I do now, grubbing for money. Good, good, um, good. Go for it. We've had we've had a pretty good response to our asking people to uh, make a Patreon contribution. Dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, million dollars a month, whatever you can manage. Um, and we will lift Spike out of poverty by doing this. And I think that's a, a great aim. Um, so thanks for everybody who has joined in and woe on you to those who haven't. Just that's right. That's right. Shame on you. Shame on you. You all know where you're going when you die. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, put a dollar in the box. That would be great. So, Hoyt's um, brought up the, the subject of, of cult involvement and kind of you're talking about a spectrum yeah. So why don't you fill us in on that point? Yeah, it's it's because it's a question that that comes up for me all the time over the last couple of decades as I've been talking about my own personal experience. Um, you know, a, a, a very common defensive posture people like to take is well, you know, that would you know that would never happen to me for reason A, B, and C, and I can usually find fault in in the, those reasons. But can I, can, I throw in a little, can I throw in a little story? This of course, please. Yeah. I have a dear friend who I've known for more than 20 years, and he kept saying to me, nobody could ever get me into a cult. And eventually I turned around to him and said, you smoke cigarettes and you drink alcohol every day. You're doing something that's harmful to you that you know is harmful to you. Who talked you into it? How did you become involved in it? You're a member of the cult of tobacco and the cult of alcohol. And it actually stopped him for a few minutes, you know. Oh, really? That's great. It, it could never happen to me. I'm yeah. much better than that. These are the most vulnerable people. These are the people that I used to recruit in Scientology, the people who well, exactly. Now, and, and I say the same thing. I say as long as you take that point of view, that's the one I had, and that's the seat I was sitting in when it happened to me. So I so I do I advise people I don't think that's the best seat to sit in. You know, right. thinking that it just absolutely can't happen to you. And I think anytime you buy into a narrative of any definitiveness, and you and I have talked about that a lot, you know, it's like the black and white thinking, the all or nothing, the binary way of thinking. Like, and once you've established some sort of narrative that you say, this can't be the way it is, or this is definitely the way it is, then you stop taking in new information. And then you're at a very, you know, vulnerable and influenced, very, very easily influenced position. So, when I when I have that discussion with people of, of them asking like well you know basically the question could this ever happen to me, I I try to make the argument that more than likely it's, you've probably already encountered some form of a cultic relationship already, and that's why I try to relate it to a spectrum not unlike autism of where there's a wide berth of where someone might be slightly autistic and someone might be massively autistic to the point where you can't even reach them they can't make eye contact or whatever so in the same way. Um, I, I would say cultic relationships break down to either group dynamics, like I experienced with the eternal values um, for 20 years of my life, or the more common form is the one-on-one -on -one relationship. And I would say on that spectrum, if I look at my experience, um, I would say on the far extreme would be maybe the Jonestown experience, you know, where where people, you know, I had 800 plus people drinking Kool-Aid and, and perishing uh, because of the influence going on there. And our group skewed that direction, obviously not to that extreme. I mean, we're still alive, thankfully, but there was definitely some really unhealthy 
group behavioral dynamics that were really, like, but ultimately could have led to something, you know, that catastrophic. Um, uh, but luckily the group, you know, uh, you know, is no longer in existence and we never got to that point. And then I put on the other side of the, the, the one-on-one relationships that are cultic, that probably the more extreme would be the, the battered wife scenario of where, you know, you've, you've, uh, you know, you've encountered a person who's basically talking about this horrible relationship they're in and how they're actually maybe experiencing violence. Uh, and yet when you look at them and, and have the conversation with them, well, you're, you're going to leave. Right. And they go, no, you don't understand. It's not his fault. It's, it's me. I, I, I bring this out of him. If I would just be better behaved, it would be okay. And so I think obviously, you know, we've all heard of those stories. We've maybe known someone like that, but that is another extreme. But there have been, you know, there are lots of cultic relationships one on one. I'd say, where um, you, know, you really are challenged to understand that you're in such a thing. Because I mean, most people will identify that they're in an unhealthy relationship, look it out, but they don't realize if it's been a cultic relationship that it's actually been highly traumatic. And as we talked about in other shows, if you don't deal with your trauma, it really resurfaces in other ways. And I think that's the big issue. We don't have the same nomenclature to say, oh, we are all having these kind of cultic relationships. You know, when you and I talk about the cultish, cultish society we live in. And, um, and I think it's just good to reframe, like a cultic relationship is really any relationship where the person who, um, the person you're seeking the love and approval from on some level, you've kind of unconsciously created this unhealthy power dynamic where you put them in some form of an authoritarian position as far as what your relationship is about. And because of that position, that person's now potentially you know, controlling you in some way and possibly abusing you. And, um, and so that's a relationship that when I frame it that way, a lot of people are like, oh my God, that sounds like my relationship with my dad or my mother or my, my coach or my boss or my lover, you know, and, or my brother or sister. And we've all had these relationships, you know, with people where we've, we just feel like no matter what we do, it's never enough. And no matter how hard we try, we're constantly being diminished. And um, now I think it's a good subject to talk about because I really feel a cultic relationships is the universal condition, unfortunately. And, uh, and because we don't, you know, basically frame it that way, a lot of uh, unhealed people who are very traumatized um, aren't really understanding why they feel, you know, probably uncomfortable about certain things in their life or why they seem to be almost stuck in a cycle of repeating some really unhealthy relationships, not realizing that they, they'd be better served if they actually realized they were cultic. And, and like anything, you can't get the medicine unless you've got the proper diagnosis. And so I think we just need to start diagnosing these these really abusive, um, you know, controlling relationships is cultic. Yeah, and I, I mean, quite a number of us in, in in the field studying cults have adopted the word authoritarian. Um, for years, the word totalitarian or totalist was, you know, was used, picked up from mm -hmm. Robert J. Lifton. And you'd look at these relationships and say, well, the, the leader has total authority. He is a totalitarian. You do as you're told. So you know, you're in the, the Krishnas and Prabhupada says, well, you, you get to sleep four hours a night. Right. You have to have a written permission slip before you can have sex. And um, the clincher for me, the haircut, I was just, no, not doing that. Uh, you know, somebody could pick you up by that. It right. Looks yeah, right. 
Exactly. Um, but the the group will or the individual in control will be authoritarian, and I think it's very important to differentiate good authority from bad authority. So, if somebody is an expert in a subject, then you know if you want surgery, you're probably best going to a surgeon, <clears throat> somebody who studied and understood it, and that so. I'm not against the notion of authority. And you know, right. it'd be nice to have yeah. politicians who are experts well, I mean, in politics. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's like a mentor, right? In a sense, you know, it's, yes. it's a very similar to the mentor relationship, right? Yes. And, but there's also then an authoritarian, which is rank authority, where somebody outranks you. And unfortunately, the two things can mix together. And so somebody who genuinely can teach you something, and, and I mean, we've heard about this, that there are, I got on the edge of some litigation that was being brought against a professor at Oxford University uh, for basically having demanded favours of a female student, which moved into the sexual area. And mm -hmm. unlike in, I think in American universities, it's actually a criminal act to have yeah. sex with your students. Not in this country. Um, oh, I didn't realise that. No, yeah. I didn't realise that, yeah. If you're past the age of consent, then it's up to you. And not understanding that that dynamic exists always in an authority relationship. That, as you said, the power dynamic. So mm -hmm. we have this ideal of democracy, this ideal where everybody's voice can be heard, where everybody can have a say, can vote. We don't actually live that way. And we haven't set up ways of making that work, as far as I can tell, because we have this problem of authoritarianism. Um, Last year, there was uh, somebody at the, you know, at the polls in, in Israel where they have an election every three, three times a year because they, they like to do that. And this young woman was asked who she voted for, and she said, um, Benjamin Netanyahu. And the interviewer said, and why did you do that? And she said, because my rabbi told me. Oh. Uh, that's what I am against. Yes. I would like to see a society where people feel they, they can be confident to express themselves. You know, it was said when um, the franchise was extended to women that it'd be pointless because they'd just vote the way their husbands told them to. And um, yeah. I don't think that's proved to be true, thankfully. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's uh, been very been proven more, more times than not that that's not the case, yeah. And, but if we go into the the political toolbox, looking at the incredible amount of manipulation, professional level manipulation that's gone into every political campaign. I mean, certainly going back to Nixon, um, right. where Nixon, of course, had a journalist on board throughout the campaign, not knowing the guy was a Democrat. And he wrote, a, I can't remember what the book is called. Um, we will find it and, and put it up. But uh, here's this amazing insider account of how the votes will be twisted how you persuade people to vote for you by lying wow fundamentally and sadly every american president since then i think obama came the closest to a clean campaign mm. um, but i none of the others uh the the yeah the i mean yeah, I mean, you, you, I always, uh, the, what I always observe is that, and I, I think the studies support that, 
that rather than talk about the positives of your character and, and what you could bring to your campaign, you, you manipulate the voter block more effectively by putting down the other opponent. That's more effective than talking about your virtues, so to speak, um, which is also, an extraordinary thing to think about. How good looking right? you are can be very important. The famous yeah. Kennedy debate, people who listened on the radio thought Nixon won, people who saw it on TV with Nixon sweating, and he had right. just come out of hospital, to be fair, um, they thought the Kennedy had won. And you have this the Kennedy effect, this idea that, that somebody is, they're more handsome. And right. Or they look more powerful or, or they're taller sometimes even just the height you know they yeah. they, they they seem to fit the, the role you know visually more than the other person you know and um, so to to look at it and say well authoritarianism is a problem the power dynamic goes wrong at the one end you have somebody who believes that they should be in control they should be in charge of every relationship and such people are bullies they push other people around, they're disrespectful, they, they cross boundaries. And then you have the people who are going, well, I, I'm not really sure what to do. Am I good enough? I don't think right. I'm good enough. And they will submit. And I've said this so many times in, in, in the last 300 videos, mm -hmm. but there is this, this number that keeps popping up. Uh, Schopenhauer said 60% of human beings don't develop into human beings, pretty much. Um, Eric Fromm said 60% of people, and no reference to Schopenhauer, uh, don't develop a self. This was in 1941 in Escape from right. um, Then you come to the Milgram experiment. 62.5% of people were willing to give a shock all right. the way in the first experiment. And then more recently, Jane McGregor, at Nottingham University has said 60% of people are apaths. I don't really like that word, but she, you know, I understand what she's saying, and they will pretty much do what they're told. Wow. Um, Martin Luther King said it's not the evil people are the problem, it's the mediocre people. It's the people who are going, well, I don't know, what would you do? Or right. you know, helping people to become more able to decide, helping them to recognize predatory behavior in other human beings and to withdraw from you know retreat from that and teaching people that you know the, the there's a wonderful book um uh, ruth ben Giat, uh, strongman about dictators and about these these figures and when you you sort of i had to put the book down for a couple of weeks because we got into the section about the sexual behavior of uh, gaddafi and mussolini and I didn't know that Mussolini would rape four women a day. And oh, his idea sure. of sex was if the woman didn't come out with bruises, then. Wow. And I've never heard that. There exists all around such a person permitting that to happen. Um, Gaddafi kept a dungeon in which one woman was in prison for eight years. Oh. Uh, and they'd just be grabbed off the streets, whoever they liked. That is the extreme, that's the totalitarian condition. But to, to teach a society that it doesn't have to be this way and to look at the ways in which our societies are authoritarian. Mm. So what we're expected to believe. And the root of this is the way family life works. You know, how much we bully our children, 
how much we allow them to grow towards responsibility and adulthood. Uh, But perhaps more so our educational system, which remains authoritarian. Even in the most liberal democracies, we have systems where the teacher is the authority rather than the teacher being the senior most person in a community of learning. Right. So, you know, I'll give you an example of this. This was something that actually happened to me. I was 15 years old. I'd walked out of school because the headmaster had said something rude about my mother and I told him you have to apologize. So I went from a very refined school. Right. Uh, We were little caps with bumblebee sort of stripes on them to the bottom end of the market, you might say, a comprehensive school. Right. And it meant that I switched all of my courses mid-syllabus and no oh, wow. two were the same. And so in history, I, you know, we'd been studying, I can't remember what we were studying, actually, it's terrible, probably something Victorian, you know, back in the 90s. Right. They were doing the 20th century and I hadn't done the first three terms of this subject. And in the, the class one day, to catch up, I would read the, the textbook for the next day's lesson. And so when the teacher made a mistake, I went, blue yeah. sir, that isn't what happened. What happened was this. And this guy exploded. So wow. his name was Brooks. I remember him well. Turned red and said, well, if you're so clever, you hold the lesson. And he went outside. Thankfully, there are only 10 minutes left. And having right. read the book the night before, it was no problem at all. A friend of mine walked past him in the corridor while this was happening. He said, he was standing there shaking by the door, red-faced and horrified. He came up to me after I'd taken the exam a few weeks later, and he said, if you've passed this exam, you're a genius. I'm happy to say I did pass, uh, but I don't have a certificate from him telling me I'm a genius. I only just passed. Right. But this notion of you have violated my authority, rather than we are a community, you know, we're a group of people trying to learn things. And if somebody in the group has, you know, something to offer, we should be grateful for that. We should be happy for it. We should not let cognitive dissonance overwhelm us and, and feel, you know, um, I'm reading uh, David Graeber and David Wengrow's Dawn of Everything, which I absolutely recommend to everybody. It is a mind-bogglingly wonderful book about the prehistory of humanity and how our society formed. Wow. Towards the beginning of the book, they take on Jared Diamond, uh, Yuval Harari, um, and you know, a couple of other pundits and their view of, you know, this is the end of history. Uh, patrician capitalism is the perfection of human society. We've evolved progressively towards this wonderful point. And um, they go, this is rubbish. And what's underlining? And they actually give a statement, you know, where Yuval Harari says, you know, we can either be bonobos or chimps that's our choice as human beings you based on the fact that they're genetically close to us we have to have one of the behaviors of those would this be true of you know all rodents you know do they all have to be and we have language we have symbolic thinking and when grow and grabers say well why don't they say biker gangs or hippies why do they have to why does he have to make this right invidious comparison which doesn't really define humans. In an Amazon review of the book, somebody took real exception. How dare he criticise Jared Diamond and Yuval Harari? You know, these wow. people are scholars. Oh, and Stephen Pinker. These people are scholars. And I'm kind of going, no, 
they took statements made by these scholars and showed that they are not true. Right. And that's authoritarianism, where you attach something and you identify with the person, you want to defend them. Well, these Russian soldiers who are going into the Ukraine and telling people that they're run by Nazis and they've come to denazify, and they're going, but our president's Jewish? Yeah. yeah. But the Russians have been propagandized to such a point in right. the incredible authoritarian system that they believe this nonsense despite the evidence before their eyes. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it brings up a great question. Like, where, where do you shift the education? I mean, it would be ideal in almost like grade school, right? To kind of give people from the beginning the, the parameters. I mean, as as a as the famous statement says, you know, common sense is not common. So you need um, you need something early on, which starts to give you some of these parameters and these. Uh, uh, it's like you know, the stuff that Cialdini teaches, you know, the persuasion stuff is so effective that realizing, you know, how you get, how we all get manipulated just through the most simple daily tasks um, and, uh, you know, daily interactions with others. Um, I feel like all of that stuff would be so much better served if, if we got it in grade school, but then you're up against the system, which basically, you know, doesn't want to do that because it, it, and it, it, it violates the the, you know, the 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 system that they've been operating on for for so long that has allowed them to stay in in their position of authoritarianism. So I don't know what the solution is. And, and I think there is a fear, and I understand it that if you if you go off the tram lines, that that you you know things won't work. I mean, thankfully there are now hundreds of schools around the world who have put aside the authoritarian model. Um, yeah. Ken Robinson's books, Creative Schooling and the Elements, talk about, you know, give many, many examples of schools that have really successfully said, don't want the tram lines, going to do it a different way. Um, you have the work of Tony Buzan with mind maps. And mm. I don't go fully with what he has to say. But when he has some kid who's struggling in school, he says, well, what, what do you want to do with your life? And right. first of all, we get that. And then you connect the schooling to it. You say, right. well, if you want to be an engineer, then maths is going to be useful to you. Trigonometry, right. all, all that stuff. I think I, I've thought about this so much in the last four yeah. So <laughs> essential. And I think the first thing is to teach assertiveness, the right to have a voice. Mm -hmm. um, Matthew Lippmann's work, uh, Socrates. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was a huge principle when I went to uh, Wellspring. You know, with um, uh, who was it? It was Ron Burke and um, Paul Martin, uh, and yeah, Paul Martin, right? And that and that was a uh, and, and and that was a huge part of it was learning to be assertive after being in a in a group setting, which you were just brainwashed into being submissive all the time. You know, recognizing the power and vitality to have your own voice is so crucial. And I think I agree. I think I think. Uh, you know, most people feel very uncomfortable with, with having their voice or feeling they don't even deserve it. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a really challenging thing. I mean, I um, it's no, a I just, but go ahead. Sorry. It's a dangerous element in Christianity, mm. that submission, and, and it's understandable, it, you know, one will find it in the, in the other religious traditions too, that, that you submit 
to the will yeah. of another. You submit right. to the will of God. And you shouldn't be boastful. You shouldn't be pushing yourself forward. Um, you should be self-sacrificing. You should, you know, to give and not to count the cost. And right. these principles are very worthy. But the problem is that they can then be absorbed by somebody who is, they can spend their whole life in service to a predator. Right. So, you know, this is what I call the weaponized empath. Yeah. You have somebody who really has, in Scientology, when I came to interview so many of the people who'd been at the top of the organization, they fitted into two groups quite neatly. They were the ones who were narcissistic. Right. I'm not going to mention any names there. Mm. And they're the ones who are empathetic. And mm. um, say my friend Hannah Whitfield, for example, mm. would be, or, or Ira Chaler, tremendous examples of powerfully empathetic people. Yet they were harnessed in the service of a tyrant. Yeah. Um, right. And so that, that thing of being able to assert yourself, you know, having a situation in a, in a class with six-year-olds where you're saying to them, each of them is going to express their opinion and you're going to go sit in a circle and go from left round. Right. And every child from a very early point is allowed to assert an opinion and not ridiculed for doing it. Right. Because again, that's so much of a problem with school teachers that they look at sometimes bad school teachers, good school teachers are the best people in the world. You know, believe me, that's, right. that's my opinion. But you, I had a situation with one of my kids. You, you just didn't want to spend time in this teacher's class anymore. And I had to go in and sit down with the head teacher and this teacher. And it was fascinating watching this guy squirm because he's quite evidently lying. He's quite evidently trying to make up a story to cover right. the vicious, sarcastic humour. And he's dealing with nine-year-olds, you know? Yeah. And he's putting them down, and he's so much better than they are. And he's going, so, yeah, he's got the age of, you know, he's like a, an 11-year-old. You know, he's, he's never heard yeah. out of that, which is another problem with teachers, that if you go from school to college to teaching with no experience of the world, then you can get the wrong sense of relationship that that you're you'll always be the boss. You know, you have to look for the head. Well, yeah, and, and and I would say that carries over into a lot of very personal relationships where you you find yourself in a relationship where this the other person in the relationship with you is diminishing you all the time, mm -hmm. and uh, and you know, and again, those are all cultic aspects. I mean, it's you know, there's a there's a great. Book, I remember um, the drama of the gifted child. Did you ever read that? I didn't know. Um, I've heard of it. Yeah, um, it's Alice Miller, and it talks That's about right. how um, now kids at that young age, you know, that they're incredibly sensitive, and if if adults just find something the child is doing that's humorous to them, and they and they find it, you know, something that they can just kind of make light of. At the expense of the child, they they do it unconsciously, just thinking, "Oh, look at this one doing this." You know, they're so silly, whatever, and don't realize how scarring that is for the child. You know, um, you know, it's a fascinating dynamic that goes on where um, there's just this you know uh, lack of sensitivity of realizing how how we influence each other and can potentially wound each other and traumatize each other, where it just becomes status quo that that's how you deal with. You know, sometimes you just poke fun at the 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 silly little child in the room and, and don't realize that it can have traumatic effect on the, on the child. 
Um, you know, and again, these are all things that I wish we would we had the tools earlier on, but it just doesn't seem like our society is ready to, to deal with those things. I don't know, you know, it's, it's fascinating because um, when you look at the full-blown cultic relationship and, and, and it's kind of the, you know, again, on that spectrum, something that, you know, becomes, I think a good teaching tool because sometimes you, you, you need to see the more extreme version to recognize maybe the more subtle version that you've experienced in your own life. And that really goes back to the, the, the you know, the premise that we were talking about that these cultic relationships emerge in our lives in, in, in very, you know, in multiple ways and, and, in, and in multiple degrees of intensity. So they don't always get properly, you know, and usually almost never get properly identified as being cultic and therefore don't realize that that, that really is traumatizing. And I feel like, like if we could start framing it in those ways, like you're talking about using the word authoritarian or, or, or cultic rather than everything's a cult, you know, I mean, I, I don't know if it's trying to come up with a nomenclature that all of a sudden makes it kind of acceptable and, and cool to talk about these relationships that have hurt us in some way and that fosters healing by being able to have the conversations. Because I think most of the time the, the, the general reaction is put in the rearview mirror, say, I got out of that, not going to think about it anymore and just go forward and don't realize you generally pull yourself into a cycle. And you start reintroducing that same sort of relationship again and again because you haven't really dealt with it, you know. And um, and that's the type of thing that that I'm grateful for as far as you know, having done some self-education. Obviously, I've done a fraction of the stuff that you have read, but it really does help to understand um, what these kind of dynamics are at play, and and that they even exist because a lot of times you don't even know what's happening. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's just it's 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 processed in a very simplistic way of, oh, well, it just didn't work out and I got, I got away from it. Or that person just didn't like me, you know, or, um, you know, they were just mean. And you don't realize there's actually some insidious manipulation going on there. And that, that type of manipulation, when you don't identify it, is incredibly scary. And once you identify it, you can start to understand how it happens. But if you're just experiencing it and it doesn't make sense, and you just feel hurt, and you feel lesser than, and you feel diminished. Um, that's a pretty intense thing to uh, to experience. But then, and 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 it's not really accurate to say, oh, they were just being mean. It's like no, they were actually they actually had an intent there to manipulate, and it's a it's a more severe wound than than most you know I think tend to treat it as. And that's where the, the you know the, the that's where the rubber meets the road of, of I think you know no healing takes place until we can really admit. Well, well, what did we, uh, you know, what happened to us and what really, how did we get hurt? You know, it's kind of like that, that famous uh, line out who said it, like you, you, the first way you get out of prison is to realize you've been in a prison. You know, a lot of times people never realize they've even been in one, you know, and, uh, and it's, uh, you know, very often just a prison of, of misguided thoughts or, or, you know, misapplied energies and not realizing what's really happened to them and not being able to, develop kind of this feeling function that allows you to process the emotions you've had and what what brought them on and what were the dynamics at play so um yeah i just uh i just wish we could get something into the schools that would shift that i don't know exactly how to do it but um, that's what i really feel like it, it, it you know it, the, there we are i, I spoke, spoke at Eton uh, college last month yeah oh yeah uh, let's way talk of getting, about that that was a way of getting things into yeah. the schools and yeah a number of people, a number of friends wrote to me when I, you know, I, I was 
bowled over by the invitation, I have to say it. Eton is perhaps the most prestigious school in the world. Yeah. Um, sure. I went to their website where they admit that, that it costs £42,000 a year to send a child there. So it's about a quarter of a million pounds. What's that, about $300,000, $350,000 that, that you're going to, you know, it's almost as expensive as Scientology. What can I say? Well, um, right. But so a number of friends wrote to me and, and sort of said, um, well, you know, this is you know, the kids will come out institutionalized, for example. Of course they will. And uh, this will lead them into, you know, occultic involvement. Now, I've had a, I've dealt with a couple of people who, who did go to what, for no sensible reason, are called public schools in this country. You went to a public school. I went to one, yes, exactly, yeah. By public, we mean private. Yes, I know. I know, it's very confusing. I try to explain that to people. It's impossible, yeah. And so I, I have had a couple of cases, you know, of, of people who'd been through public school and then got involved with um, an authoritarian cult group. And it, they really had been prepared for it. The experience yeah. had got them ready. They'd been institutionalized. They didn't know what to do after they you know, left university and they ended up in, in a cult group. Right. And so there were various dire warnings being floated my way. And I had a different sense of the place. I felt that I'd actually be seeing a progressive education. I'd be seeing kids who are being encouraged to think, which they certainly are not in the state system. Yeah. And so I, I was invited by the Journalism Society and ooh, absolutely wonderful. You know, the place itself, uh, the, we went into the original schoolroom um, founded in 1440. Wow. Which means it's only about seven or 800 years uh, younger than the oldest school in Britain, which is Canterbury School, which is seventh century. You know? Wow. They still have the same teachers running it. Um, <laughs> but here we are, 1440, Henry VI starts this thing. And here I am in this, this room with these wooden beams supporting it. And everything is carved. There's graffiti on all the way up the walls, everything. Hundreds of years of graffiti. The benches wow. are carved away, the little... Um, plank table is indented with carving you know quite wonderful they use it as a detention center now and in fact two kids had carved names recently and uh, of course the, the 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 tutor who showed us around said and and um my fiance pamela both went that's going to be their enemy that's carved their name isn't it right right nobody's they're smart enough not to do that here and the you know the ancient chapel and all you know where this is where Queen Victoria used to sit because of course Windsor Castle is in view. Right. Monarchs spend most of their time. This is George the Third's organ because he used to come and have a bit of a razzle. You know when he wasn't trying to quash the American rebellion, he'd sit there doing that. Um, so you know in a place of history, you know there's Shelley's name scrawled into the wall with a bust of Shelley. Right. And um, the tutor did say, we're not sure that he, he, he actually did carve his name there, but it's there. And a lot of it's, you know, these are quite wealthy children for the most part. And so that their names are graffitied by professional woodcarvers in places. Oh, really? Yeah. So um, Prince Harry, Prince William, there are their names. Carved wow. High up the wall because they're high-ranking people. And so you're in this incredible piece of history and 
I sat down to have dinner with the, the boys of the, the journalism society and um, the lad who sat to my, the two founders of the society, the two, they're called secretaries, the boys who run it, uh, mm -hmm. Fraser on one side, Freddie on the other. And Freddie engaged me in this um, fairly much barrage of conversation because he was fascinated. Now, most of what he was asking me, I answered in the talk afterwards. Right. But along the way, he talked about um, his philosophy tutor and that when they were studying Nietzsche, they also listened to Richard Strauss's Also Sprach Zarathustra. When they were, when they were studying um, Schopenhauer, right. they listened to Brahms' Fourth Symphony. And what I was getting was exactly, you know, thankfully, what I'd expected that here's a young man who is perfectly capable of asserting himself and having a conversation. He doesn't feel shy or embarrassed about that. And I think that's an important first step. Um, but he's also being encouraged to think, being encouraged to make connections, you know, and you put Nietzsche in the historical context, which of course will lead us right. to Elizabeth Nietzsche to Hitler. Because all conversations lead to Hitler eventually, it's well known. But so, and the questions at the end, as, as you said, the Q&A period at the end, yeah. I, I've given a fair few talks in the last 40 years. Yeah. I don't think I've ever had such an intelligent question yeah. and answer period. So now, now, were they coming from students or where are they coming for those questions? They were all, all the questions were from the students, yes. Wow. That's we had Spike overvoice them so that yeah. anonymity would be preserved. Right, right. No, I, I, I knew there was a voiceover, so I wasn't sure whether they were teachers or whether they were actual students. So that's that's quite because because when you when you look back at it now, like what do you think was their um, motivation in wanting you to talk? I mean, was it just purely educational, or did they, or or was there some self awareness that they are in a very in, institutionalized environment? You know that that might actually be considered in some way. And uh, having influence and control, you know, aspects to it. I I don't think that I don't think the latter. Uh, yeah. Um, and I have no sense of that. And of course, right. you're very formalized environment. They they right. they dress. You know, the Eton collar with the yeah right. And, uh, the the bow ties of different right. colors to indicate right. different status. You know, so in terms of a hierarchical society, it really is one. But I. We had two of the tutors sat at dinner with us, uh, you know, a dozen or so boys. And the behavior of the tutors towards the kids, the friendliness, the concern, which seemed a very, you know, familial concern, the sort of concern that, that you see in families between people right. who like each other. And wow. the, the behavior was, the courtesy was, refreshing you know the boys came and served the food you know and they right um so the interactions seem much healthier to me than the interactions i have seen in schools and wow, that's, quite that's, a lot i've got four kids yeah that's fantastic that i i, I think initially i was just invited because a, a dear friend of mine an old friend of mine has, his son has just gone up to eat and last year and right. and he's, you know, he he promotes me. He's always uh, bless him, you know, with that more people did. Go on, go out there and promote me. 
Uh, sell my books on street corners um but he went to tutor and said oh i know this bloke and he's quite interesting and and so i thought well it's that's all it is it's you know you're paying that much money then yeah what are they gonna do and of course do anything really because they've got over a thousand boys there they don't care about your money um it's also worth saying they're seeking to get to a point where 10 percent of their boys are on scholarship and they pay a hundred and ten percent scholarship, so the child actually will will get over four thousand pounds to make sure a year to make sure they can afford the uniforms and all of the going down to Tom Brown's cafe in 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 Windsor to um, to, to hang out. Right. Um, but the re- and the rest of them these days they all have to pass an exam. So um, Boris Johnson. David Cameron got in there somehow, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg, but who knows how. A lot of money, I think, must have changed hands. Yeah. They don't seem to be especially proud of, of Cameron and Johnson, but then who would be? But I, I think, so initially it was, I thought, well, it's, you know, it's just a, a mate's recommendation. And then I had a, the second email approach I had was, would I like to talk about the perils of investigating Scientology? Because that would probably fill the room. And... Uh, indeed, we we had 150% more people in the room than is normal, you know. So it, oh, wow. there are lots of societies yeah. running at the same time during the evenings. So uh, where they'd normally get 30 kids in, 30 people in the room, they got 74. So um, wow. And so I, I wanted very much to give a talk when I was first approached about how to spot fake news and propaganda how to see what's going on in advertising, because that's what I've been working on for the last few months. I've been working on it for years, but the last few months I've been working on a a curriculum for schools. And I I said, oh, great, I'll I'll come and do that. But but offered this thing, oh, I'm going to talk about Scientology again. You know, everybody thinks that this is what John does with his time, because 30 years ago I wrote a book about it. Um, And it is true, you know, I do use it to exemplify just about every aspect of authoritarianism because it does you know it does yeah one of the worst but so I, I wanted to talk about that because that seemed very relevant to journalists you know how, you know how do you tell what how do you check a source how, how do you do these things things that i'm right. now very familiar with having done a lot of research over the years and having a lot of that research having been into how the truth is. Right. So, um, so that's what I wanted to do, but they wanted Scientology because, um, they, you know, it's a... a Got to that. It's the bright, sparkly object, right? I mean, that's yeah. a, that pulls the crowd in, sure. And, but, uh, uh, you know, so I've today written a begging letter asking if I can go back and talk about fake news. Yeah, so, yeah. I week. think... I, because obviously they're 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 very related, you know, and uh, you know, and, and this whole idea of polarizing people. I mean, I, I make the analogy very often that that the way COVID has been handled has been very cultic, you know, as far as polarizing people, you know, and again, like we talked about earlier, getting people to buy into a narrative, you know, and obviously the extreme ones would be, oh, it's a total hoax, and the other ones think it's like, you know, it'd be the end of the world. So you know, those are the, these extremes. But people, even when, when they get towards one, either one of those, they get to that place where they get, you know, you, you've got a fear aspect being, you know, you know uh, utilized. 
and that's where the critical thinking stops and that's where they stop taking in new information so that even if so if you encounter someone like that you know which i have on both sides um and i've just said well you know there's actually some interesting studies out and you can reference like you know just like get some actual data to say that that narrative that you're holding on to isn't per se so accurate um and rather than hear that they immediately assume you're now on the other camp of the other extreme and yeah. start de demonizing you i'm like hold on that's not what i'm saying here at all you know if you're if you're talking to the people that you know um you know, are, are afraid that this thing's going to kill everyone. It's like, oh, you're one of those anti-vaxxers. I'm like, no, I'm not saying that at all. You know, I, that's not at all what I'm saying. I'm just saying there's more to it than may, perhaps you've been told. And and what's been interesting for me is to encounter that, you know, um, it's in essence, medium version of myself when I was in the cult. And it's given me a real sense of compassion and empathy of what I put my friends and family through by meeting people like that, you know, all over the place. I'm like, oh my God, this is what it must've been like to try to get through to me. You have this kind of force field up and you're not conscious of it and you're just reactive. You, you can't, you're not at that point where you, you're still taking in new information and you're still processing, you're, you're still a work in progress. You, you've gotten to a place where, nope, this is the way it is. And anyone who doesn't agree with me, they're the opposite. They're the, you know, the whole us versus them thing. So going back to our initial premise, it's like, I would say a, few, a lot of people were saying, oh, this could never happen to me. I never had any sort of cultic relation. I'm like, well, you've, I think the whole world's had kind of a cultic experience with the way COVID's been handled. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the way that our governments, you know, deal with matters and tell us what we yeah. have to do. Right. Right. Quite contrary to any scientific ruling. You know, at the moment yeah. in the UK, we've dropped all of our COVID rules. But yeah. not on scientific advice. In fact, we've got the highest number of COVID cases in Scotland they've ever had. But because our prime minister got into trouble because he was caught having parties in secret, having ruled that nobody else could. And they had 16 yeah. of these parties and they've all been fined about 50 pounds each, you know, about $70. Wow. Doing wow. But to get his own backbenchers, um, non-cabinet politicians in his own party to support him because his party is against these rules they've just yeah. and so opportunism rules yeah I, I think the you know if when george w bush started on his way into afghanistan he made one of those really awful statements which was basically if you're not with us you're against us right yeah so unless exactly. you join up with us you're our enemy now Right. That, you know, I, I mean, I am definitely non-binary in that sense. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. I, and, and what you say is so true. I, you know, my, I think my favorite of, of the things I've done on my own on this, this channel uh, with my son, Sam, was um, Andy Nolch debugged, uh, debunked because mm. I'd done, th this guy came out of nowhere and he wanted to interview me and I was too busy to, check him out and I did six, right. like six hours of interviews and he said he'd left Scientology and been involved for eight years and right he'd left because of my work you know he wrote to me these things I have them in black and white and and so I just did the interviews without checking him out and you know um, my dear friend Tony Ortega as soon as he realized I'd done this um, because Nolch actually released one of the videos three days before we'd agreed said um, do you know what Andy Nolch went to prison for 
it's a fair question, isn't it? So what? Yeah. Yeah. And I started looking into him and his background, and I decided that for the moment I wasn't going to air any of these three interviews. They were for his channel anyway. And, right. Um, I just thought, you know, there's too much controversy here. Right. Uh, you know, and he, he, he was asking some odd questions and he, he did seem a little, he didn't seem to have the proper reactions to things. So right. um, then he did a video about me, which is well worth watching, called John Atek Debunked. Oh, interesting. And right. he spent a, somewhere an hour and 20 minutes, so was, I think it was, basically saying that, I'm not credible. Wow. That's all there is to it. What did he use as criteria for that? I mean, well, that, uh, John doesn't like Trump. Trump's an awesome guy. Oh, okay. John doesn't like Putin. Putin's an awesome guy. John mm. doesn't believe in psychic powers. John doesn't believe in aliens. Mm. John believes in global warming and he thinks mm. vaccines work. So those are his basic points for. Dismissive, right. which is exactly what you say. He made a, a huge amount of presumptions about what I believe. And right. you know, I'm a slave to the mainstream media or something. Right, and right. I right. have been criticizing everybody and everything since I was a teenager. Even in Scientology, I was noted for saying, this is wrong. You're not doing this right. Yeah. I have been opposed to every political leader we've had in the UK since I was born. Right. Same in the US, I'll say nasty things about anybody. I am not caught up in, in this thing, but immediately there's this presumption. And, yeah. you know, and, and so what I did, and it was great fun, it's the only time in my life I've ever done it, I took everything he'd said and sentence by sentence we deconstructed it. And if you're having to deal with a conspiracy theorist, this might be useful because, it, you know, he, for example, John believes in global warming, I go down to the beach in Melbourne and the water level's always the same. You're kind of going, so you don't have tides in Melbourne, Andy? Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Us in the world, we have work? tides, you know? Yeah. And then you've got these floods now that have happened in Australia, you know? Um, it just, it, he even gets to a point where he says, John should believe in weaker evidence. He should find a conspiracy theorist like me to talk to and believe in weaker evidence. And it's sort of when there is strong evidence and when you know how to find it, and I think right. I do by now, right. then, so, and there was, COVID's a very good example because, yeah. um, in fact, in the, the talk that I want to give on, uh, you had on the fake, on the fake news. news, yeah, yeah. He gave me a piece of material because he'd said that um, countries were forcing people to have vaccines. Now, Canada, I think, has has tried this tactic and not very well. But um, at the time, no, nobody I was aware of did. So I just wrote to him innocently and said, where has this happened? Yeah. And he sent me back the Sean Brooks video where um, this guy stands up in a, a school meeting and he says, um, I have an Oxford PhD and uh, the vaccines all of the vaccines will kill you within three to five years or at least sterilize you. And this was the answer to what country has forced people to have vaccines. So it's sort of, you know, it's got the word vaccine in it. Yeah, yeah. 
got Adax season orange and he thinks it's a hat. He can't, he said oh, that three times. So seeing this inability to focus on the subject, um, we went and had a look at Sean Brooks. And yeah, he does have a PhD from Oxford. But that's uh, Oxford, Ohio. The Miami University of Oxford, yeah. Ohio. Um, right. Oxford University in the UK doesn't provide, it does DPhils, it doesn't do PhDs. Right. His PhD, again, well, he, you know, he's an expert. Yeah, his PhD is in education. He talks about having written all of these books and papers. They're all of them about education. And he refers to one expert. And when we checked that expert out, we found he'd been banned from social media for deceptions on a couple of occasions. Wow. And this pharmacological chemist, and he did have something to do with the idea of using mRNA in vaccines a long time ago. He only criticizes two of the vaccines, in fact. So Brooks has made it all of the vaccines will do this. And he doesn't say that they'll kill you or sterilize you. And that's his whole source of information. So wow. that's sort of, John should believe in weaker evidence, the stuff I make up. And he also has what he calls closed door secret briefings. And he does them on YouTube. That's, that's why well, I tell you, a, a chap that I've enjoyed listening to a lot, uh, surprisingly, is Russell Brand. Have you listened to him at all? He, he's very variable because I, he did a great show on, on drugs. And, yeah. and it's the most impressive thing I've seen. But most yeah. of the time, he annoys the hell out of me. You know? <laughs> well, I, the, the reason I, and I, and I don't watch him all the time, I've just seen, to, but he does seem to foster critical thinking. You know, like, like, hang on, there's, there's more, more sides to the story than just one or two, you know, and I think that, that, that I admire that he's done. And I mean, he's a fast talker, so it's hard to follow sometimes, but uh, he's, uh, I, I thought, you know, listen, that, I think that's anyone who's, who's, who's encouraging people to think for themselves, I'm, I can get behind, you know? Yeah, as long as yeah. they don't push an agenda of their own. Yeah. That is, you see, one of the problems in Scientology is that Hubbard is always telling you to use your critical thinking. Keep right. the analyzer worrying, he says. You know, what's true for you is true. Check everything thoroughly. And so sometimes you get the, the double bind message. Which is like the, it's, it's the NLP, right? That's really the kind of like, uh, you know, you're being, you're being said one thing, but you're, what you're feeling is the opposite. You know, it's like... Uh, no, you can come to me and talk to me anytime and, and challenge whatever I'm saying. And the message you're getting is like, don't ever come and challenge anything I'm saying. You're like, okay. okay. And if you yeah. do, I, I will trash you. Yeah, exactly. And that's, and my, and my, my cult leader did that technique all the time. It's like, if you don't agree with me, just come talk to me. Oh, and you knew that that would just be a shit show if you did that. So, um, so we should, but, let's ask Russell Brand to come and talk with us and we'll we'll see what he's really like eh? yeah that would be interesting that'd be fun i'd like that that'd be good hmm well good. um what have i got on my oh I, yeah i wanted to say something that, that there is a terrible problem in in pouring out the bad news that people become apathetic you, you right know, where so the environmentalism at the moment i think many of us are now you know, I've been recycling my paper and plastic since 1984. All right, well done. Yep. And uh, I know that half of it is burned or sent to Turkey to litter their beaches. But I, 
you know, I try and keep right, it. Right. And I think that it gets to the point where you're kind of going, <clears throat> I as an individual can do nothing about this anymore. You know, it is up to governments to legislate, uh, and it is, and they've, for the most part, been enormously tardy in doing this. I, I can remember right. it's Rachel Carson, Silent Spring, 1963, I think, who first raised the threat of agribusiness and the use mm. of DDT. I didn't realize, but DDT is still being used in Africa. Wow. And it never wow. goes away. It now, is that, is, is that because it's just cheap? I mean, why would they still be using something? Cheap that... and incredibly effective. Wow. It kills everything. Yeah. <laughs> it'll kill everything for generations. Yeah. yeah. Be passed wow. through the food chain. But so we, we become drenched and drowned and inundated with bad news. And so, you know, and much as I love um, Boaty McBoatface, sorry, Sir David Attenborough, uh, yeah. that's what the boat's been renamed. Okay. Incredible guy. What, yeah. what an amazing career. And such beauty is brought to us, but it often sends us into a panic. Mm. And I recommend a documentary called The Serengeti Rules, which actually shows incredible change that's taking place around the world through rewilding that wow. huge areas of land have been reclaimed at the moment and they talk about keystone species species without which and it was the wildebeest on the serengeti yeah this guy was in charge of the serengeti and they 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 basically had their covid19 thing about 100 years ago the wildebeest right. and they were wiped out by this disease and they wow. started, uh, I think it's called Rinderpest. They started vaccinating them to, to bring it back. Uh, and numbers doubled year on year. And there's this conference where the guy who's in charge of this program is told, you've got to start culling them. There are now 400,000 of them. You've got to start culling them. And he right. thought about it and he went, I'm not going to. And the number stabilized. And the Serengeti came back. All of the other species, you know, the dung wow. from the wildebeest feeds the grass, the grass, everything right. came back. And it was found that in every environment, so in rice paddies, it's the wolf spider, in Chinese rice paddies. Yeah. If you take this oh. spider away, you get other insect pests and things go badly wrong. And that what they're finding is that by putting species back, it's being suggested recently that maybe rabbits in this country are a keystone species and that we're losing birds wow. of prey yeah. because they've got nothing to eat you know and oh interesting yeah because i remember reading something about wolves in um i think in yellowstone park or one of those ones because they didn't want any wolf attacks and things and they eliminated the wolves and the whole the deer you know, started eating just, all the trees yeah exactly the whole ecosystem just got thrashed. Yeah, they had to bring the wolves back. So yeah, that, that uh, I've heard those make sense. I mean, it's a it's a very fragile system. You know, you can't. Those, there's those key species. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, and knowing we Amazing. can do something about it. And and similarly with with energy, that that with yeah. Putin having turned out to be utterly mad, and. There's a country that's completely dependent on its sale of oil and gas. Maybe mm. that's enough of a push. You know, in, in, in um, 
in this country, we've got this thing to re replace our gas boilers, uh, mm -hmm. natural gas, through most of Britain, with um, air source heat pumps, which are very expensive and not tremendously efficient. Wow. Other possibility, which is hydrogen. Hydrogen. I've heard. I've heard great things about hydrogen. Yeah. yeah. And you can. There's yeah. green hydrogen. There's blue hydrogen. Yeah. There's great. There's exactly. Hydrogen of different types, but you can actually our gas boiler systems and probably ninety percent of British homes have a, a gas boiler. You you can adapt it to take hydrogen, and we did. Oh, wow. When coal gas switched to natural gas in the 1960s, oh, it's already been done once successfully. And you then have a fuel that is remarkably efficient, absolutely as safe as the gas we're already using, perhaps more so. You can run cars on it and you can yeah. get away from any dependence on the Arab countries, right? Or on Russia, or indeed on foreign countries, because that I think. Our globalization, this lovely idea that if we become dependent on other countries and can't survive without them, peace will blossom on earth, hasn't actually proved to be true. Um, yeah. The downside of this is yeah. that next year there's going to be a hell of a shortage of wheat because Ukraine is the biggest supplier of wheat in the world. I think. Oh, yeah. Well, there's, there's all issues around the food shortages coming on, right? I mean, there's going to be a, there's a lot of talk about that. So. Yeah, I'm gluten intolerant, so I don't care about wheat. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a big weed eater, so it's not gonna not gonna affect my day. But yeah, it's gonna it's gonna get interesting. Yeah. Exciting time to be alive, John. You know, there's Isn't there's it? no lack of things to to witness, right? It's so true. Right. Well, I think we have oh. switched the subject around a little bit now. Yes, I think we've covered it on lots of different colors, so that's nice. Yeah. And um, so. Let's uh, wind up and um, while the children aren't looking, we can arrange yeah. our next meeting. Okay, sounds and, good. So it's been, a, what a pleasure, what a pleasure. And um, we'll see you again soon. I hope, I look forward to it as always. Take care, brother. Hi, John here. Thanks for watching. We'd appreciate it very much if you would click like as well as subscribe and click the bell for notifications. Every dollar helps and we welcome new patrons on Patreon. Or you can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks so much.